The following episode of the 9pm edict isn't. Well, no, it's it's not. So, do you remember the Australian Democrats, the political party that uh, imploded quite spectacularly around the turn of the 21st century? Uh, well, they're back, or at least they're trying to be back. Now, the Democrats was uh, deregistered uh, some time back, but they were re-registered in 2019, and while they didn't win any seats in that year's federal election, they're planning to field candidates everywhere in the next one, next year. They also have a podcast, Keep the Bastards Honest. Uh, That, of course, echoes the party slogan adopted by the founder, Don Chip, back in 1977. Now, although I'm not a party member or a member of any political party, I'm not really much of a a joiner, I was invited onto the pod a few weeks ago, and hey, I'm happy to give people my opinions on things. So we recorded this episode on the 14th of October and it was published this week. So a couple of things have happened since, but you'll get the drift of it. Enjoy. To keep the bastards honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, we have our first guest, freelance writer, raconteur, and host of the 9pm Edict podcast, Stilgarian has been covering internet policy and all the cyber things for a decade and a half, primarily for tech news sites ZDNet, and before that, Crikey. He joined us to talk about a bunch of cybersecurity and, well, general security legislation that's either been recently passed or is in the process of being debated, and that might have slipped under everyone's radar with everything else that's been going on. We recorded this just before Scott Morrison shredded his own and Australia's reputation on the global stage, so some of our speculations on things have been, once again, overtaken by events, but still is, as always, a sparkling conversationalist and a fount of fascinating information, and we are very fortunate to have him grace Keep the Bastards Honest as our inaugural guest. Stilgarian, my co-host Steve Beatty, and I pay our respects to the traditional owners of the lands upon which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. You were a radio announcer, radio producer, producer mostly. Adelaide. Yep, ABC Adelaide back in the late 80s and the very beginning of the 90s. Cause this is the Keep the Bastards Honest podcast and we are the Australian Democrats. Tell us about Janine Haynes. We'll, we'll happily hear anything about Janine. She obviously is a, a leading light in the history of the party and one of our, you know, like one of our standouts. Well, yes, of course, she was leader of the Democrats from 1986 to 1990 when I think it's fair to say the Democrats were at the height or part of when they were at their height. What about peaks? Uh, yeah, the, the popularity and, and electoral success. I produced a presenter by the name of Tony McCarthy. And Janine Haynes, before she got into politics, was a primary school teacher. She had been the teacher of his two kids. So we had that personal connection. The big thing happened uh, in the 1990 federal election when Janine decided, let's have a go at the lower house. So she ran for the seat of Kingston 
which is where she lived. And she pulled 26.4% of the primary vote. Bloody hell. Which, okay. yeah, that's that's what we're talking about. And the Democrats in South Australia, certainly, that election, were pulling in the low 20s generally in, in many of the, the urban seats. <laughs> I know, it makes it a – it's like – it's hard to think about that now. But, of course – the Democrats were the third party in the sense that the, the Greens are now, or One Nation was for a period. So she decided to to run for Kingston, didn't quite make it, 26.4%. I mean, that's fabulous. Preferences flowed extremely well in her favour, but no. Mm. So on the Monday after the election, we thought, let's let's get her on the program. We're doing the nighttime program. And I, I phoned her PA, Pat, I remember her name. And I said, hi, is Janine doing interviews? And she said, look, Janine said she's not doing interviews, but, like, it's it's you and Tony, so I'll just ask. And five seconds later, Janine's on the phone. She just said, still, still, I'll come on as long as you promise not to make me cry. <laughs> and, and I said, look. I can't we, promise that. I mean, we won't try to make you cry, but whether you cry or not is really not up to us. And I thought, all right, you know, we'll, we'll do some stuff. Look, we'll do you as the lead item straight off the seven o'clock news in the evening. Uh, red or white? <laughs> you know, we'll get some wine in. And so having locked that in, Tony and I then spent the afternoon pre-recording all the rest of the nighttime program. So we just recorded two more hours of program to take us through to 10 o'clock. Janine arrived with her husband, Ian, came in and we just sat and talked politics and life and what would happen next for most of an hour. It was fabulous. I mean, she was a really nice person. Of course, she she did die very early at the age of 59, a bit later, from a, a degenerative neurological disease, one of those those weird ones. But, yeah, we, we had, had a chat and then sat in the studio for a couple of hours drinking wine while the tapes played out. What struck me about that is she maintained her sense of – Integrity at the end. All right, you know, the title of the pod is Keep the Bastards Honest. That's been the Australian Democrats thing for years. People said, why didn't you run in another electorate? And what I find interesting is the what if. Because had she run in Mayo, the next electorate over, the Democrat candidate there uh, scored 21.3% of the primary vote, like a random Democrat not enough to unseat Ian Milson, who was the Liberal candidate there, so he continued on. Sorry, I'm silly me, I'm thinking about Sturt. It was Ian Milson in Sturt. But had Janine run in Mayo, she would have unseated Downer on the <gasps> basis of her personal swing on top of the general Democrat vote. Yeah. So 1990 election, how would the politics of South Australia changed had down or been out in 1990. How would the politics of the nation change? Yeah. yeah. And, and yes, she probably could have done it in Sturt as well. That was Ian, uh, Ian Wilson sort of uh, – Wilson or Wilson? I can't read my notes. But he was a long-standing Liberal and it was the 93 election that Pine took – Christopher Pine took over in Sturt. So that was a maybe, but certainly Janine Haynes would have taken Mayo and taken down Alexander Downer in 1990. But she said – I don't live in that electorate. Yeah, you know we feel strongly about that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and we we and we do. 
this month, last month, we've been having conversations about that kind of thing and still sort of going, yeah, but that's not that's not where that person lives, you know? Like, yeah. we, we don't do that kind of thing. And then you sort of look over at you know, the thing going on at the moment with Christine Keneally, and I'm, I'm not going to get into too much into that, but it's it's interesting that it, um, well, that idea of yes. that idea of parachuting a high profile candidate into a relatively safe seat to get them into the House of Reps, and it, and it most often happens with either party executives, it seems, or senators parachute yeah. them into somewhere that they don't actually live to get them a safe role into uh, the House of Reps, but. Yeah, we, we don't do that. It, it was a different time. I mean, Bob Hawke was Prime Minister and won that election. It just seems so long ago. Well, it is so long ago. It's 31 years ago. Only 30 years, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, Australia was a different place. But here was someone, all right, she was the leader, but it's the third party and she's having a go at the lower house. The Greens have done that successfully, what, a couple of times? A couple of times now, yeah. Yeah. It was so close, but that's how the numbers went. So it was a very sad night, I must say. Yeah, what a thing. But she said, I said I'd give it a go, and if I didn't do it, I'm out of politics. She could have easily just gone back to the Senate, obviously, but no. Yeah. Yeah, because Janine was extraordinary because she was the very first Australian Democrat to enter federal parliament. Yeah. Um, she filled a casual vacancy in 1977. So the party was formed in 1977, and by December 1977, we were in parliament through this casual vacancy. And then she became the first female leader of a political party in Australian history in 1986. I will send through to you, and maybe you can drop it into the pod in a second, I found on YouTube Janine Haynes' 30-second TV spot for the 1990 election. Oh, wow. So I'm going to just Our play it for you now. Our fight is for a better, now. safer Australia for everybody. Australia needs the Democrats like never before, protecting the environment, a fair society. You have to care. You have to give a damn. Yes, we have kept them honest. Hundreds of amendments passed. Don't just hope for a better Australia. Vote for it. Give a damn. Vote Democrat. Authorised by Janine Haynes for the Australian Democrats, Canberra. Now, as much as we love talking about the past, we've got you on to talk about the present. Now, their parliament goes back on Monday. It feels like they've had quite the holiday, but I'm, I'm sure I'm being uh, unkind. But parliament goes back on Monday. There's a lot on the agenda for Parliament for the last four weeks of the of the year in 2021. There's a lot around IT, telecommunications, cybersecurity, data, privacy, uh, like a whole range of stuff. Is there like is there any kind of coherence to what's going on? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. There is not. And 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 look, last year there was a massive review. Now the th- I'll roll back a sec. The thing about anything related to cybersecurity is by its very definition is interconnected with communications policy because the internet, with freedom of information and privacy and national security and crime, and it's this whole thing, right? And there was a big review last year of surveillance technology, internet, whatever, and the reviewer whose name escapes me just now, I better just check that app for me, head of ASIO, what was it? Doesn't matter. And the reviewer 
made the point that this is just a mess since 9-11, 20 years ago last month, there have been nearly 70 different pieces of legislation passed in Australia related to these issues. And they've all been these little ad hoc patches. One of my favourites is that a few years back, and this actually happened you know, well before the the current government, we decided to accede to a treaty called the Council of Europe Convention on Cybercrime, which talked about information sharing to chase cyber criminals, right? Here are the rules under which our cops will share data with other nations. It's a good thing. Nice. Playing nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, Let's look, how can we good. chase these people? Because cross-border sure. issues are at the core of cybercrime. They were in such a rush to put the legislation together that the legislation actually hit Parliament in a way that was not actually conforming with the rules the Council of Europe Treaty <laughs> did. And they had to rush through amendments, technical amendments at the last minute to go, oh, no, no, wait, we've got all that wrong. Oh, my God. So the basic thing is it's been ad hoc all over the place for 20 years. There is you know, a, a recommendation to say, okay, you need to roll this whole thing back and create a coherent act of parliament under a structure to do that. That is probably a three to five year project. Mm. Yeah, well. You know, it's complicated. Hopefully, and, yeah. And the longer you leave it before you start with more ad hoc changes, the harder it's going to get. So what we have, of course since that's come out, is more ad hoc changes. Um, <laughs> there seem to be a lot. I'm looking at, yeah. I'm looking at a list. And, and I'm not blaming the coalition for this solely. I mean, Labor does no. the same yeah, stuff well, and yes. did, but, you know, let's complain about the current government lot, not live in the past. Mm. Yes. So we've, we've had some stuff done recently. Uh, we've had the... What's what's called in brief the Identify and Disrupt Act, and maybe we can come back to that because that's about getting into people's um, internet activities. We've had the extremely controversial Toller Act, if you want to call it, or the uh, Access and Thingy Act, uh, which is about accessing encrypted data. Hmm. Toller is Telecommunications and Other Legislation Act. And I should do the thing, the Assistance and Access Act is the other part of it. I mean, these these acts, are they have long names, but at least they're not getting the corny kind of abbreviations that the Americans have, like the Patriot Act, the P, and then they'll do a backronym to work out a name for that. A good with oh, that kind of thing, yeah. Branding, it's all about the branding. <laughs> Uh, and then you attach a tax clause at the end of it. Somewhere, yeah, the, randomly. Yeah, of a 6,000-page bill. We don't do that, but what we do have is rapidly written legislation that tries very hard to be future-proof by making everything so vague that at the very least it's going to create work for lawyers and the high court, right. in time, federal courts and high court in time to come. So we've had the online safety bill just gone through. I'm kind of all over the place here, but I think that's fitting for describing cyber legislation in Australia. So I'll, I'll run through what we have on the table and then Please. maybe you can drill back in. So we have the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Brackets Identify and Disrupt Act of 2021, which has passed last uh, back in August. Uh, we passed have- in a hurry, didn't it? 
oh, you've got to do this in a hurry because, like it was, because the world know, will end. 36 hours from, from like, the ink wasn't even dry and, you know, senators were yeah. saying yay. We had the same with the TOLA Act, The uh, and I will get the title right here, the Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendment Act, uh, Assistance and Access Act. I've still got that wrong. It's a terrible thing. But that was passed in December 2018. Again, massive thing. There were this this huge swathe of amendments thrown through in the last minute. And Labor was originally going to vote it down. But at the very last minute, like the House of Reps had done their bit and the House of Reps members were off to the airport to go home and the Senate, Labor flipped and passed it with the government, uh, much to the annoyance because it was a trade-off against the refugee medical evacuation legislation. So I do know from a Labor politician I had beers with, a Labor MP, that, that like, yeah, they got a phone call that night just saying, oh, sorry. So again, it was one of those things where Labor had spent several days arguing against this thing and then voted for it anyway. I this is I've heard this described as Labor's bitch and fault strategy. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> and and, and like I think that's eight, eight years in eight years in opposition and, and that's they've they've perfected that, it seems, and not much else. But hopefully, this time around, they'll get it over the line. But yes, but the, I digress. The Act, this is this is the thing. Labor said, all right, look, we'll vote it through because we don't want terrorists for Christmas. I mean, that sure. literally, you know, how they it ended Who up. Does, right? Front. Yeah. And said, but we'll come back in February, you know, early 2019, and we'll deal with those remaining issues, uh, which, of course, you know, never happened. Haven't happened yet. Oh, 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 but you you, you didn't do this. It's People have compared it to Peanuts cartoons where Lucy is always going to Charlie Brown, go on, come in and punt the football. I'll hold it for you. This time, this time I really will hold it in the right place for you to kick it. Wow, we've gone all over the place with that, but that's, again, in fitting. The Online Safety Act has just passed which gives enormous power to the e-safety commissioner to decide what is and is not appropriate on the internet. We are lucky at the moment that Julie Inman Grant seems to be a relatively sensible person. What if that but, person isn't reasonable? Well, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, this is, this is the thing, right? Yeah. Some years ago, um, back when Labor Senator Stephen Conroy was communications minister, and the internet filter was the thing. Clean up the internet. 2007, we're talking here. I had a a friendly but very rowdy discussion with Stephen Conroy in his office in Melbourne about really the wide open way this, this stuff was written. And he started talking about Australia having robust institutions and stop being so paranoid and all of that. Now, from the perspective of 2021, Looking back at that, after the years of Trump, after the years of yeah. you know stuff in other countries, we now realise that our assumptions about our traditions of democratic institutions and blah blah, it's all just because we do it and we rely on people of good faith to do it. And as Trump showed us, you just say it's no, convention. I won't do that. It's yeah, not a rule. We it's won't convention. do that. Yeah. And as the coalition government has shown us, no, we won't. We won't bother with Parliament for this now. COVID-19 did rip into their schedule, and I think it's it's fair 
to say Parliament could not sit a lot last year, certainly, and and the legislative program is way behind schedule. But it's a convenient excuse. And there's nothing anywhere that says that Parliament has to really sit at all. No. I mean, there's no, there is literally nothing to stop the Prime Minister saying, okay, that's it for Parliament for this week and we'll come back in uh, March next year. Next year. You know, like I'll see you after Christmas. Yeah. And this is the, yes, we have serious matters to discuss and the business of the nation requires us to, when you actually dig into it, all of that is just convention. Yeah. And, and we rely on good faith for people to actually deliver on that. But by and large, a lot of it is just, yeah, handshakes and, and nods. It's not actual laws. <laughs> <laughs> well, which is why... Uh, as you said on a previous episode, for example, Christian Porter's million-ish dollars from somewhere. He hasn't actually broken the rules, probably. Maybe. 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 I I feel like Steve and I, we've spent the last three podcast episodes or so talking about how fragile our democracy is and how how Mm. close it is to going off a cliff. And I feel sometimes, you know, when I'm editing, it's like, oh, God, we're sort of like the political chicken little going, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. We're banging on about the same thing again. (laughs) (laughs) But But it's true. (laughs) Well, civil society groups who look at things like cybersecurity legislation and surveillance legislation – that to bring it back to allegedly what we're talking about, they feel the same way about this. It's it's we told you a decade ago that this would not work. We told you that the COVID safe app would not work. We told you that this other thing would be a breach of privacy and would all fall in a hole. We told you that the 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 digital health records had all of these problems. Yeah. But, but they don't want to hear. Yeah. And then, like, afterwards, sort of, oh, you know, whoever could have predicted that this might be a problem or that this would be abused. The, um, what did you call it, the Disrupt? Uh, the uh, Identify and Disrupt Act. Right. Um, so this is, this is a classic example, I think, this of is... one where it, so it is law, it has passed, and I'll, I'll ask you to give us like a, a, a concise view of, of what it is in a moment. But this feels to me like something that is absolutely inevitably going to be abused. There's no doubt about it in my mind, like the inevitability of it is complete. What is it? Okay. The idea is that it's all about terrorists, obviously. And absolutely. Sexual yeah. abuse material and international drug dealing. Everything's always about that until you look at the legislation and it's down to any crime with more than two or three years jail sentence which includes, uh, in Queensland, graffitiing a public building, for example. Okay, the cops don't have time to deal with that, but maybe in the future they could if you had five times as many cops. Maybe. Which is the point I was making to Stephen Conroy. You know, we, we, we only choose not to use the law in these ways, often because resources, often because political will. But if we wanted to, what, what stops them? Okay, if it's not about these other things, then where does it say in the law that that can't happen? Anyway, the Identify and Disrupt Act, three kinds of warrants. So there's a data disruption warrant, and this is one of the the most controversial bit, which to disrupt potential criminal activity of this nature, you can modify, copy, add and delete data on a computer system or network. Yeah, no problem there at all. No. (laughs) Can't see how it can be abused. 
the other two are less controversial, I suppose. There's the network activity warrant, which basically allows you to monitor stuff. So it fits in the kind of same framework as telephone intercepts or whatever. That one, to me, does feel just like a natural extension into the digital realm of a phone intercept. The other one is an account takeover warrant, which is to take over someone's account, whether we're talking email, social media or whatever, to pretend to be that person and do stuff. Now, in the international realm, we do do such things such as pretending to be a senior Taliban leader on an encrypted communication and convince someone that, oh, you're thinking of joining the Taliban um, Australian person who has become indoctrinated, sure, we will send you a message and you will be escalated to a senior person and blah, blah. That's a thing we know happens. So so those two less so, right? We will take over the account of the father of a kidnapped child or something. Well, he's going to do it anyway. He's going to give permission, but whatever. But yeah, the data disruption thing, because it's just all encompassing. Now, we know what it's intended that we'll fake some communications or we'll delete their plans. Sure. But like all of this legislation, it is written in such incredibly general terms that without people of goodwill at the top, it could be misused or it could be misused accidentally bad. You know, the federal police in other laws saying, oh, we were meant to have a warrant for the journalist data. Sorry, we forgot to do that. Yeah. Next time. Next time. I tend to be in the pessimist camp when it comes to this kind of thing and okay. fairly firmly in the pessimist camp. And my thinking tends to be that if it can be abused, it will be. Sooner or later, sure. Sooner or later, it will be. And it may be that we access a terrorist or a suspected terrorist social media accounts before the warrant arrives. But I'm more concerned about us accessing our ex-partner because I think they're seeing somebody else and I want to find out. So I'll hack into their, and I'll use this channel now. It's not even a hack. To their community. Well, I know, like it's just a door, right? Well, you follow the media release feeds of any of the state police forces and there is a regular stream of things where Constable so-and-so looks up on the police intelligence database or whatever else they have access to, the address of their former partner, all of that. Yep, yep. And the worst thing is, like, you yes. know, all the former partner of his mate. You like know, that case exactly. Queensland. Yes. Yes. You know. Yes. Like, you don't have to go far for examples. Like, that's no. the... No. And now we're opening that door even wider and giving additional powers to actually make use of it. Yeah, because the police can totally be trusted with this shit. They've demonstrated this. (laughs) Whenever you have a power differential, you're going to get people tempted to use the power they have in inappropriate ways. And we come back again to corruption. We've come back. And in a way, it's human nature. So systems need to be set up so that bad things don't happen. One of the worst things in software design, engineering or whatever is, oh, it was, sorry, it was human error. So what about the system allowed that human to make that error so easily? Surely a good system, a safe system will mean that even if the human makes the error, I mean, it's as bad as the old, are you really sure, question mark, Y slash N. Just that, yeah, just a cross check. Yes. Uh, Yes, Yes, I have a warrant. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. 
<laughs> in in my in my non democrats life, I I work in software development. I'm a business analyst, and it's actually my job to ask those questions and go, yeah. what if some well-meaning but erroneous Distracted human person. Hmm, yeah, did press this button, what happens then? And the, frequently the developers go, oh, oh yeah, that, that would be bad. It's, it's, let's put some safeguards in place. Well, some research was done a few years ago for uh, when do people click on the bad link in the email and they get taken to the bad place and they get hacked or put their thing is. And it was by and large at breakfast time at home. This was research done by the University of Otago in New Zealand a few years ago, and they looked at uh, medic like hospitals and other things. And it was people at home. They're distracted. It's breakfast time. It's seven thirty in the morning. They have to check it because these days we don't start work until. We get to work. We start work from whenever we wake until we sleep. And breakfast time in the morning. Oh, oh the boss says, oh, and new rosters, it says. Oh, no. What did it click? That's a lovely segue, whether deliberate or not, into the ransomware payments bill. Now, there are two parts uh -huh. to the ransomware payments bill and a whole thing about Australia's response to this global scourge of ransomware can you tell us how big a deal is it? Like I, I noted that in the in the paper that was released, there was talk oh, yes. about how Australia is is a, a, a an attractive target, but only ah. gave data about international incidents. You know, there's sort of forty billion dollars worth of ransomware attacks that occur globally, but nothing about what's actually happening in Australia. So I'm curious. Okay, well, look, I better say, okay, ransomware is when someone gets into your computer system, encrypts all your data so you can't access it, and said, you want your data back? Send us money in cryptocurrency, of course. Or screw you. It's really good business because it's really easy to do and it's very hard to trace. I'm not recommending this as a path for anyone listening. Career path, no. No, no but it's the cybercrime du jour because it works. Yes, okay. Um, it's a thing. Because it's of those thing. people clicking on emails over breakfast. Yep. And you just do this and, oh, oh or whatever. And now they're in. Now, the best defense, I should say, against ransomware is having really good data backups that you have tested and worked. Because, oh, you've recrypted all my data. Big deal. I'll just wipe the computers and restore from a backup. Go away. But very few businesses have that, and it does take time to do. And annoyingly, some of the old school Eastern European, i.e. Russian cyber criminals, would normally balk at the idea of doing ransomware against a hospital. Mm. Okay. Not nice. That's a that you can cause trouble doing it. Against a bank, sure, an insurance company, shipping company, whatever, do it. Oil pipeline. That one of that yeah, oil pipeline, yeah. whatever. Yes. That's old school you know. cyber. The new ones, you know, the younger guys coming through it now don't care. They'll take up medical data. And particularly against American companies, the hospitals have everyone's credit card numbers uh, as well. And it's a big part. Okay. Yep. Anyway. Back to this. Yes, it's a problem in Australia because we're a wealthy country and have the money to pay the ransom. Simple as that. What do we do about it? Well, we did have drop this week as we record this a ransomware action plan from the government 
which is... I love a good action plan. It is. It's a bit vague. Quite a lot of it... It's pretty, though. Of the 16 pages, I think six of them are just big graphics from the designers and whatever. And it says, oh, you know, we're, we have a zero-tolerance attitude to ransomware. Okay, yeah, yeah, good luck with that because it works. And so we're going to have some new legislation. Now, the two bills you see on, on the table... Yeah. Are actually Labor bills. So Tim Watts, uh, who's the shadow person for the internet, basically, the shadow cyber, he put a rant. So the, the deal is here, broadly speaking, we want companies to report that this is a thing so that the cops can chase it and at the same time, like, don't pay the ransom, okay, but at least report it. Companies don't want to do that because it's it's embarrassing. It affects shareholder value. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes, most companies don't pay the ransom. Some do. We say that because we, we, we in a sense, we don't really know. Some companies will just pay it. Because they don't um, report it. Don't report it. The idea is to report it. So Labor put a bill on the table last year, which the government kind of ignored, so they got the same bill again and put it in the Senate. Christina Keneally... (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's it's the same. So it's number one it's and number thing, two, but, but it's the same thing. Bills, ransomware, or something or other bill, and then number two. It's actually the same bill, one in the House, one in the Senate, which the government is conveniently ignoring because this week they announced their own ransomware action plan. Awesome. Yes, yes. and they're going to have their own legislation coming through because it's an election year and they want to say – that they tackled ransomware. Yes, um, yes. Yep. There's definitely a, an election coming, but we won't get drawn into that little rabbit hole either. I mean, we can, but it, like, no. it's a rabbit hole and, and you won't get rid of Elena and I if you do. I, I want to say, though, I will say about the act, the plan is, is very vague. I mean, we will see some legislation soon, I'm sure. The only concrete things that we... I suppose we really know about it, is that the Australian Federal Police will have an actual task force set up to deal with ransomware. I'm surprised they didn't already. Perhaps they did already, and we're now just giving it a name. It is Operation AUKUS, O-R-C-U-S, which is annoying because we did just have another AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, as a defence agreement. So lots of left-hand, right-hand stuff going on here. So good, good. Cops have set up. A task force, lovely, thank you. There will be awareness raising, so money out to advertising companies. Good. And we will see a bill probably in the next session because why not? Let's forget all the other things we're meant to do. Let's have a brand new shiny bill and ram it through. So there will be a standalone offence of cyber extortion. I mean, ransomware is just extortion, right? Yeah, of course it is, right? We, yeah. we have caused you damage. We can make your damage go away for money. It's a standover thing. It's extortion. Standover racket, right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Which is already a crime. It's just extortion brackets with a computer involved. So there is in the field of people who are cynical about this, we call it the murder on Thursday law. Okay. It is. <laughs> And we see that in the one-punch legislation that some states have passed, right? Like, manslaughter is already a crime. Assault causing grievous bodily harm is already a crime. But apparently, if you just have one punch without warning, that has to be a whole separate crime because talkback radio hosts have complained about the, the completely new phenomenon of young drunk males punching each other up on a Saturday night. Yeah, never happened in my day. Never ha- never happened in your day and some nice middle-class white boy gets punched, hits his head on the, the footpath and is dead. 
So the one-punch laws, yeah, they're basically manslaughter brackets on a Saturday night, but only one punch. (laughs) Very, very, very specific, yes. So cyber extortion will be a thing as opposed to extortion. It will have grandiose penalties. It will have ability, I'm sure, for the cops to investigate in certain ways. Powers which they all already have. Right, okay. So, still, forgive my cynicism, but is this this basically an announcement dressed up as legislation? Yes. (laughs) The vast majority of things in that 16-page glossy brochure are... A recitation of things that have already been announced. Wait, what? Yeah, okay. Have a look at it. It's, it goes through all the things in the 2020 cybersecurity strategy. It says, oh, we've, we've done this. We've allocated money for these things. We're giving the Australian Cybersecurity Centre more staff to do this. We're doing infinite. And you go, yeah, yeah that's, that's all a thing. And then right down the bottom, you get there'll be some legislation to do this. Oh, we'll do some awareness raising. You know, yeah. Look, it's good, it's fabulous, but that's what we have on the table. It is purely a glossy brochure of announcements to brand the ransomware action plan as a a coalition policy, not a labour policy. Yeah, okay. And it's all pretty obvious stuff anyway, with no specific targets, no timelines. No, no, yeah. no. I, I, I mean, I don't know, I, Elena. You've obviously done planning in a corporate context. Remember, you, and I'm sure you have and strategy goals. You know, timelines, timelines. Maybe right. even a budget. You know, even a budget. Yeah, and outcomes. What are we trying to achieve? Uh, Crazy. uh, A zero tolerance approach to ransomware, apparently. (laughs) This is is what does my head in because I've spent my whole career in the private sector doing all this sort Mm. of stuff. And and I look at this and it's like we're past sort of yes minister and yes prime minister and and the Holloman territory now. And the thick of it. Yeah. We're really in the thick of it now. (laughs) Yes. This is utopia. This is what happens when the student politicians go from university into parliament. That's effectively what happened, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, because I mean, we talk about the professionalisation of of politics, and and mm. not not that I'm yearning for the regime of John Howard again, but you got the, the eyebrows. The eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your cartoonists probably still mourn John Howard for the eyebrows. The yeah, you sort of got the sense that a lot of the ministry in the Howard era had life experience outside of politics and actually had some kind of clue of what real life was like. Absolutely. And then you look, you look at this mm. next generation coming through, and it's like, and I mean, to say that they're out of touch is, is actually a misnomer because they were, they were never in touch, yeah. No, they, they just have no idea. Mm. And at the risk of, of bucketing both sides equally, I get the feeling that Labor is not much better. <laughs> <laughs> and, no, they're and, not. And look, let's go for the trifecta. I get the feeling that the Greens probably aren't that much better either. Have a look at the uh, latest essential polling out earlier this week. There is actually something like 8% of Greens members think we're doing too much on climate change. Do they not understand their party's purpose? Yeah, it's to maintain the value of your terrace house in Balmain. (laughs) 
Seriously, in Balmain, there there are people objecting to people putting solar panels on their roof. Other people putting solar panels on their roof because that will destroy the the heritage nature of the the streetscape. Because these little workers' cottages uh, would not normally have had so so. So if you want solar panels, no, no, put it behind your house in the back garden where I don't have to look at it, where I can't see it. Yeah, yeah, nice. Okay. And don't build that apartment building because it'll cause traffic on the roads around me. Anyway, that's that's another whole thing. Can I, I – one of the things that is going on at the moment, we were just sort of touching on this sort of career politicians, but related to that is the um, gradual decline of the Australian Public Service. And one of the ah. parliamentary inquiries that you were particularly interested in, I noticed, was around the current capability of the APS, in particular around digital and data capability. What's happening there? We basically just have an inquiry underway and it's very new. So we, we don't quite know what, it, what it's going to find yet. What but do we think? This is an interesting one. It's uh, up before the Senate Finance and Public Administration References Committee. The current capability of the Australian Public Service. Now, that is an incredibly broad title. Just a little, yep. What has been noted, essentially, that two things are happening. One is that many digital projects that are uh, run by the Australian government have turned out suboptimally, shall we say politely. Shall we say, yep. <laughs> yeah, they've been a dog's breakfast as well because so much of it is either poorly managed within the public service or it's just sent out to one of the big consulting firms and costs us a fortune in various ways. So the phrase is uh, looking at the public services digital and data capability, including coordination, infrastructure and workforce among other things. So there is a, a feeling out there amongst many people, myself included, that all of these skills have been lost in the public service itself. Now, I want to give a good example of that, and that's the COVID-19 Near Me website. Yeah, okay. So you would think that, and these are in case data coming from the state governments, but as a national thing, you might expect the federal government to show me, show me a summary of all this data. And what's happened is that you can't see that, but a guy called Ken Sang, working by himself in his spare time, created COVID-19 near me. It's a website you go to. It grabs the data from the States and New Zealand in this case. It shows them on a map. You dismiss all the ones, no, I don't need to know about that. And it's all there. And now also shows you where you can get a vaccine tomorrow. Just say, what? You know, what age group am I in? Do I need to walk in or drive in? I would like to menu shop and have this colour vaccine with these frills. And it'll tell you where you can go on which day. This is something that one person can put together in their spare time. Yeah. And so much of how data can be handled and displayed is of this same scale. We we are not using computers as we were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We now have all of these big, fancy tools we can just take off the shelf, bolt together, and do fantastic things. We had another example of the COVID base one where we, we're seeing a database of all of the stats coming in. You can slice and dice and look at uh, vaccination rates, infection rates, hospitalization rates put together by three high school students aged 14 and 15. 
it's the sort of thing where if the government did it, they would sub it out to one of the big consulting firms and there'd be no change out of $10 million. Yeah, yeah. I am really interested to see what this inquiry finds. Who's driving it? Like, who chairs the finance and public administration? Is this like Katie Gallagher? Because if that's the case, this is going to be a cracker. And if it's a Liberal Party person, then I I don't expect quite the same degree of... um, Fireworks? No. No. Not at all. So while you look that up, I'm reminded a friend of mine, a guy by the name of Greg Petroff, was the chief experience officer at GE. And one of the things that he said to me a few years back was that we've we've reached the point where with a lot of our technology, with the development of our software platforms, with the development of our hardware platforms, we've reached a point where we can pretty much do most of what we want to do. And the piece that's missing is the ability to actually define what it is that we want. And the rest of it is is possible. So the feasibility part of a software or technology development project is, is largely done. The, the cost of it is obviously still a factor. But he said, you know, like technically, a lot of this stuff is going to be possible. And I think of some of these things as just being caught up in the bureaucracy of a lack of imagination, like the erosion of that skill set within the public sector. And it's not at an individual level, like it's systemic. You've got very widespread, long-term dissolution of the the APS that's been going on, and you see it right across the the sector. I'm surprised, though, in this particular case, given the digital transformation agency, and try not to laugh, um, you know, like there was that whole push around the digital capability of government, the digital capability with the public service, and here we are. Yes, yes, as you saw on the feed, I was laughing. I mean, there was a prime minister a couple of prime ministers ago who was up for digital stuff, Malcolm Turnbull, who is, I will say, quite genuinely enthused about how society can be transformed through this technology. I mean, he sees it through the eyes of a rich white man from Sydney's eastern suburbs and a merchant banker and all of that, but he does understand mm. uh, that. He's not as smart as he thinks he is, but probably then a lot of politicians <laughs> fall into that category. To be fair, you uh, know, he, he was head and shoulders above much of his, many of his colleagues in that. It's a low bar. But it is. I know, yeah. It is a low bar. Because, I mean, I, I found, sorry, just, sorry to just rabbit hole us for a second, but I did find mm. the notion that all of Turnbull's talk of agility and, you know, his, <sighs> his, as you said, his genuine enthusiasm for how we can transform society through technology, the notion that that somehow scared the horses and, and, and as a society mm. we all freaked out about that. I found that a bit a bit of a misnomer. It's like, have you seen the way we take up technology in society? Yeah, yeah. Australia's always been a rapid adopter. Very yeah. Good. Very so, good. Like, so this notion yeah, of a prime minister. It was more with... the people sitting on his own side of Parliament House that were the problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that like that and that adoption of technology goes back a, a couple of hundred years. It's literally been yeah. we've been quite fast to adopt innovations that have been and and technological developments that have been developed in other parts of the world and here, we're very, very open to adopting them, whether it's the telegraph line, the steam engine, you know, to name a couple from a couple of... Uh, oh, the Overland ago. Telegraph is one of them. The my... Overland Telegraph, yes. The France, which we, again, we won't do today. No, 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 no. But uh, two things. <laughs> so on two separate occasions, so 25 years apart, in 1994... 
I surveyed the telegraph line from Port Augusta to Darwin and went and visited each repeater station through the Central Australian desert from Port Augusta to Darwin. And in, 19, uh, in 2019, I rode the Overland Telegraph to the tip of Cape York on a mountain bike and again got to camp at, at, a, at a bunch of the repeater stations or a bunch of the telegraph stations through Cape York. That's one that we need to talk about at some point in time. But yes. That's a whole separate podcast. On- it is a whole separate thing, yes. Going down that rabbit hole. But we do take up technology rapidly, right? Like it's not just mobile phones. We've been doing it for 200 years. Yeah. Back to the Senate Standing Committees on Finance and Public Administration, the References Committee, which this is, Chair Senator Tim Ayres, Labor Party. Okay. Deputy Chair Senator Claire Chandler, Liberals Tasmania. And then the members are Kimberly Kitching, ALP, James Patterson, a Liberal Party, who is... Yeah, right. You'd probably be good in this context. Mm-hmm. Senator Malcolm Roberts. Here we go. Here oh, boy. It, uh, Pauline Hanson's One Nation, of course. Uh, and Murray Watt from Labor. And then there's a bunch of other participants. But that's the core committee membership. It's it's not rubbish. It's, oh, well, apart from... For, for, one, for one glaring um, exception. Apart from glaring. <laughs> oh, <Malcolm>. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But that's interesting. Uh, the thing is, though, again, the this committee report by thirty first of October. Oh, they were referred this. Uh, sorry, they they this was actually referred to them in December last year. They're not going to report by the end of this month. That's not going to happen. No, no. I mean, I just saw how one of the favourites I was following was the uh, uh, feral animals inquiry, which just kept putting back and putting back. There's something like six progress reports saying, yes, we've had meetings and hearings and and we'd like to <laughs> extend our deadline. Again, as I say, we have had COVID-19. Uh, it has been hard for the committees. Like if only we had some technology that allowed us to com- communicate remotely and, <laughs> yes. and get work done yes. without being able to meet face-to-face. But, you know, maybe that's one of the digital capabilities that we're, we're lacking in the Australian yeah. public sector. Yes. Yeah. I want to I want to move on to to one last thing while we have you, which is around social media. Mm-hmm. There's a bill or a, a parliamentary inquiry into foreign interference through social media, but we've also yeah. seen a number of our MPs, including the Prime Minister, coming out recently in opposition or in anger against uh, social media warriors, the cowards of social media, <laughs> the anonymous keyboard warriors. Um, like these are these are separate but related issues. Is this is this just a cover to undermine what people read on social media, or is there more to it? It's a couple of oh, several things at play here. One is this this general sense that there are bad things on the internet, and we need to do something about it. Okay. There are bad things in the world that we need to do things about. And uh, every day there's someone wrong on the internet, but, you know. Yep, yep, yep. Society as a whole, I'm going to get reflective here. Society as a whole is still trying to understand what this massive transformation of interpersonal communication means. It's very new. I mean, we say, oh, we've had commercial internet for 25 years or whatever, but yeah, but that's only one generation. I suspect. You know, no, I won't speculate about people's age, but there's the sense that the internet makes things somehow worse. And no, I think it's not the internet, it's people. The internet just connects people and people are terrible. Have you met people? I mean, they are just awful. I've met a few, yeah. Yeah. So we have this, kind of what happens though is that 
Every now and then, someone important has something bad happen on the internet, and they have a bit of a <laughs> And what we had happen in recent days is Barnaby Joyce's daughter cop a whole range of rumours about how she was having an affair with John Barillaro, the former New South Wales Nationals leader and so on. Now, that's obviously upsetting. I completely understand why Barnaby Joyce would be upset and angry about that. So we've had this sudden announcements from him, from the Prime Minister, backed up by Michaelia Cash as Attorney General, uh, Paul Fletcher as Communications Minister, that we need to do something about that. It's a coward's palace, says says, uh, the Prime Minister, and we need to do something about this. So whenever this happens, and as I wrote at ZDNet, as regular as a cuckoo clock, they say we need to identify everyone who uses social media. On the surface, that kind of sounds okay someone anonymous said something if we if only we find out who they are then we can deal with them i mean the problem is but you go on facebook groups you go on anywhere people are quite happily under their own name saying the most appalling things facebook already has a real names policy and has for more than half a decade that's right yeah it it does not stop people and the simple thing is, if someone has power, they're a, a white police officer having a go at a person of colour, they're someone who is male sending abusive bank text messages to their ex-partner, whatever. It's purely power. You don't need to be anonymous if you have the power. And we see that, and I'll allude to this carefully, we see that with the Defence Minister Peter Dutton, who is very upset about claims made about him in a tweet, which has long since been deleted. Uh, A tweet was by refugee uh, advocate uh, Shane Bazzi. Peter Dutton is going in hard with defamation laws. Now, fine, he's upset. Fine, he thinks that is a thing that is wrong. But he is a government minister. He has uh, his own wealth. He can hire expensive lawyers. Shane Bazzi, less so. So that's what finding out who to to blame is all about. Now, we keep hearing that we're going to see some more legislation on this soon, says Barnaby Joyce. Fine. We do have the Online Safety Act passed recently. There is a consultation for a thing called BOES, the Basic Online Safety Expectations. Department of Home Affairs is, the Department of Communications rather, is running that. And that will be the basic set of standards that online platforms will have to follow to deal with safety problems, which includes hurt feelings. What I want to say about identifying people is that, broadly speaking, it doesn't work. There is there is no evidence whatsoever that having someone's driver's license and 100 points of ID will suddenly make them behave better in the same way that having a, a murder on Thursday rule or a, a separate category of cybercrime will cause them to go, oh, well, well, now we'll stop. We've been busily making millions of dollars here, but oh, oh, it's a whole new a separate category of crime. Yep. Governments around the world have said this, this is not compatible with freedom of speech. Two examples which I think are fascinating. One is South Korea. They had problems with election disinformation some years ago. So they said back in around 2004 that if you want to post on an election material-related website, got to have your ID on there. We've got to know who's saying this. Okay. And then they extended that to any website with more than 300,000 daily visitors, so all your social media sites. The research shows that didn't change anything. What it did change is that 
One of the websites was hacked and 35 million South Koreans had their national identification numbers stolen in a massive data breach. Around that time, uh, the Constitutional Court in South Korea said, no, that's not on. Anonymity or using a pseudonym, they said, that means you can, quote, voice criticism on majority opinion without giving into external pressure, end quote. And that is why Australia, a world leader, had the secret ballot which in many countries around the world is called the Australian ballot. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You vote in secret and no one can pressure you to vote for certain in a certain way. And in Europe, Facebook's real names policy, the, a German court ruled it illegal in Europe. So the only country in the world which is currently demanding government-issued ID to post on social media is China. And that should tell you something. That's nice. Maybe, maybe, like we need, coming soon. maybe we need like a national identity card that everyone holds. Uh, I don't know what you'd call it. Still, maybe like um, an Australia card. That would be a good name. I didn't realise you were that old. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely am. Back in the 1980s, there was this idea. Yes, the Halcyon uh, days. So, yeah, considering human rights and other things is not a strong point of recent governments in Australia, uh, we are, of course, the only uh, major Western democracy without a legislated Bill of Rights and, and, and so on. It'd be nice to start with one of them and build that up as a framework, but here we are. Who knows? Maybe. Mm. Maybe one day. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll get there. Yeah. Because... This whole thing, you know, the social media that I think so many people found baffling is is that it, if Morrison wants to crack down on people being mean to each other and in, on the internet, once again he needs to look at his own backbench. Because Andrew P. Street had a fantastic article uh, in on Independent you're Australia. A of, you're a bit of a fan of Andrew P. Street. I am. Look, I'm an unashamed fan of Andrew P. Street. So I, a friend I, of I, mine I, has been on my podcast. Oh, so yeah. So in the interest of honesty and accountability and transparency, I will I will own that up. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He's a lovely um, human being. He writes well. Oh, he writes he beautifully. Does. He said, to be fair, the relationship between the coalition and integrity on social media has always been one of, but when I do it, it's cute. <laughs> yeah. Here here we are, but of course we are going to get action now because uh, as I said about Joyce, Joyce's daughter has meant they're uh, they've been kicked in the politicals and uh, there's an election coming up and they don't want misinformation they don't well they don't want anonymous people posting allegations that embarrass them and we see that happening all over in in everything from well peter dutton's action uh john barrolaro's action against friendly geordies which is always amusing to watch the magistrate's comments about that if you follow the news stories uh am i going to see it presumably with barnaby joyce finding out who this this in this case, anonymous person is, and 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 many more. I'm I'm going to just put my cynical hat firmly back on for a moment <laughs> because it it it, w it was there all along. Let's be honest. But I mean, there's there's an election coming. Yep. The election has to be held by the 21st of May. There's some speculation that it will be called next week and and be held in November. There's some speculation that we'll wait until we've had a nice summer, you know, weekends at the beat, cricket on the TV with crowd, you know, all of those nice things. 
followed by an election being called in February and held in March as the sort of two most likely scenarios. But I wonder how much of what we're seeing is setting us up for an election campaign where it's it's easy to simply point to things on social media. We know that like a lot of the political advertising is going to be on places like Facebook, in places like Twitter. We, we know that that's going to happen. It's a lot more effective. It can be more easily targeted. Whether that works or not is, is an open question. And I was reading some research recently that suggests that it doesn't actually help all that much. But still, it will be on places like Facebook that we see that sort of political advertising. Are we just trying to undermine that message so that government or whoever can point to it and go, ah, well, see, this is exactly the problem that we're talking about with social media is that it's basically the wild west of slander and, and lies. Sure, and it is. Uh, but at the same time, they will want to use it to their maximum advantage to target specific people, specific electorates, specific uh, demographics. And I think many people don't realise that the ads they see on social media, on Facebook and YouTube or whatever, whatever, are chosen for them. Like the social media giants know where you live, how old you are, probably a lot of interests about you, the fact that you've been looking at adverts for a Lexus rather than a Honda, like a low-end Honda, tell them a little bit about your, your income levels, so on and so forth. So you can advertise really quite finely to specific demographics with a specific message. Plus you have spoilers like Clive Palmer coming in and just barraging the world with stuff. I, It's again one of those two-edged swords. Social media, yes, they want to crack down. All the parties will want to crack down on misinformation, but they themselves will want to use the platforms for their own misinformation. And if if I can be so bold as to make a prediction, I I reckon we'll see little random cutout organisations that are, oh, not connected with us, but placing ads and saying things. The online equivalent of those little anonymous flyers shoved in people's letterboxes that allege your local candidate is married to a horse or something like that. Just quietly, uh, currently sports bets odds. Will there be a federal election in 2011? Odds on dollar... F- oh, no. No election in 2021. Odds on dollar fifteen. Election in 2021, five bucks. So the betting market is not, not this year. Interesting. Mind you, they, they did pay out a Labor win before the election was even held last time, so, <laughs> That's true. you know. Well, currently the odds are Labor win $1.85, Coalition $1.90, so it's neck and neck. Okay. I'm going, to, I'm going to wait until Sunday morning before I sort of celebrate or commiserate one way or another this time around. I got definitely <laughs> yes. burnt. I definitely got burnt last time. But still, that has been a fabulous uh, conversation. Thank you so much for coming and and sharing with us on this episode and there's a lot happening um yes it's it's easy to get confused by the plethora of bits i think but it's 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 great to have your perspective and uh, it's been wonderful having you on the show well thank you my pleasure Thanks once again to Storgarian for joining us. Steve and I had a great time picking his brain on all things security related, and I can't thank him enough for that amazing anecdote about Janine Haynes and what the country could have been had she lived in Mayo 
and not Kingston. To save our younger listeners having to Google what on earth the Australia card was, I've put a link to its Wikipedia article in the show notes, along with a link to the little slice of Democrats history still played for us with Janine Haynes' 1990 election ad. If you enjoyed Still's sparkling repartee and encyclopedic knowledge of things, you can catch him in writing at ZDNet and at his own podcast, The 9pm Edict, which I've linked to in the show notes. If you're new to The Edict, I've linked to a recent episode with Dr Liz Buchanan, who talked to Still about Antarctic geopolitics, and it was an absolute cracker of an episode. Without spoiling anything, I'm going to say that Dr Buchanan had me at Secret Antarctic Nazi Bunker. Get onto that one if you haven't already. And I'm sorry to say, we still need your help. As regular listeners will know, we must demonstrate to the Australian Electoral Commission by December 2nd, 2021, that we have a minimum of 1,500 members in order to retain our registration as a party. We're close, but we're not quite there yet. Please consider joining us, if for no reason than to help us get the numbers we need so we can contest the next federal election, which Storgarian predicted will not be until next year especially after the debacle that was Scott Morrison's G20 and COP26 visits. You can join for free with our supporter member option, and there's a link in the show notes to do just that. As Janine said in her ad, don't just hope for a better Australia, vote for one. Joining us will help all Australians vote for a better Australia. So join us, won't you? Do your bit for a better Australia. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening. And just before I go, a reminder that the 9pm edict is supported by you, the generous listener. If you feel the urge, go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip and do the needful. That's the 9pmedict.com slash tip. Or if you don't want to do that, don't. But just tell your friends. It's a great podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm still Garyan, and I will be next time. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.